Okay, so welcome again. It's good to see everybody. We are Shinjin Mei uh, session number five. And uh, we are on this paragraph. To attain the principle, return to the source. Pursuing reflections, the essence is lost. Also another translation, return to oneness and discover its essence. Being dazzled by appearance, you miss the truth. Being dazzled by appearance, you miss the truth. And uh, commentary. This inner silence is the root before it was covered up and marginalized by linguistic constructs that in turn conditioned us to accept those constructs as reality itself. So the inner silence, the root, as he says, before it was covered up and marginalized by linguistic, linguistic constructs that in turn conditioned us to accept those constructs as reality itself. So just keep that in mind. In the modern age, more than ever before, we have been trying to supply meaning to life through achievement, through acquisitions, through status and positions, through goals and plans. But we are hardly aware that we are always dealing with the appearance of things rather than their inner reality. We are, in a way, another, another way to say that, we are dealing with the surface rather than the root. Appearances, and then we get caught up in that, and we react to that instead of taking the time to be quiet and look deeper. Where does it come from? What gives rise to appearance? And then he says, therefore, meaning is assigned to appearances and to appearances as reality. A conditioned compulsion to supply meaning compels us to make emotional and psychological investments in the appearance of things. And such investments eventually lead to separations into self and other, to opposite thinking. These investments and pursuits may serve for a while, but eventually we find them to be hollow. They do not supply us with what we need in order to feel whole and complete. Their failure to do so, and in the sorrow and pain that issues from their failure, we discover that we cannot pursue the outer appearance of things. Now, this is a very important point, right? We discover, and we have to, we ought to, this, to get to the point of discovery, right? That we see that what we do doesn't work or doesn't deliver what we ask it, or maybe we're promised that it will deliver, right? It doesn't deliver. Now, hearing it is one thing. Realizing it is completely different, right? And and what Zen is asking us to do is not just to hear the words or to understand them intellectually, but rather to, to dive into how does it, how do I experience it, right? Who else is going to verify, right? So if we verify by reading more of the same, it's never going to be verified or it's never going to be internalized. It's just going to be another concept on top of other concepts, 
which we may agree or disagree with. So to turn inwardly and to recognize, discover on our own that we cannot pursue, that pursuing other appearances of things does not work. Then he says, any investment in the provisional ignores the absolute aspect of reality and is bound to lead to disenchantment. So there's more uh, commentary I want to share, but up to now, what do you feel about that? Just that, that alone. Any investment in appearance will eventually not deliver. It doesn't deliver now, but eventually we will see. If we look deeply, we will see that it doesn't deliver. Do we agree? By experience, do we agree? Okay, so Yoko nods. Yes. Yes. I agree. Would you like to share more than that? Do we need to move the Depending on how loud she will speak. So let me ask you this, from, from your experience, from your life experience, experiences, right? You've realized what works, or maybe we should say, you've realized what doesn't work. Right? right? Um, but it's not like, well, we're, I'm thinking now is that um, to feel balanced, complete, whole, there needs to be a balance. It's not that appearances don't matter at all or that they're totally not real. And uh, it's hard to find that balance. But um, uh, it's really hard for me to say more at the moment. I think it would be better if someone... Okay, yeah, that. just let it percolate for a bit and see if something else comes up. You want to say something? I just want yeah. a quick stop, and then I'm going to keep going so other things may surface. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, too, like, you know, because... Knowing when it is and when it isn't isn't is kind of what we grow with in the sense of, you know, sometimes a duck is just a duck. You know, it's right there, and the appearance is the, the essence in a way. Um, there is, but we <clears throat> fall into suffering, and we think there's more there than what we're perceiving, and we dig deeper and maybe chase after things that aren't really there, When uh, and we create things out of that uh, assumption that there is more there. But sometimes appearances play games and there is more there and we can look deeper but I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive uh, it's either this right or left it's it's kind of often all changing all in a moment it, right it's a question of pursuing something that's it, it's a question of asking appearances mm -hmm. to give or to deliver what appearances cannot deliver mm -hmm. right it's not about asking what it is or what it's not 
It's more about, but yes, there are experiences, right? There are appearances. We experience appearances, obviously. But the question is, what kind of relationship we have with appearances? What do we demand? Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe we're promised that, that it will deliver. Yeah, I think, you know, I think in a more experiential level, I, I, I mean, personal experience of many times of kind of on your face disappointment of what I'm expecting of something that seems to be what I want and it's not. And I think, you know, that's kind of what, what, what that passage is talking about. It's like, okay, so for instance, um, you know, I remember kind of when I came to, to study and do the master's degree, you know, and and I know I added a lot of value to, to what I was getting when I got the degree. Mm-hmm. That the moment I got it and, you know, the months after that, it was like, all right. Uh, and it, it's like you get to this appointment of, it's like a big, huge situation of the build up and then you get into that point and it's like, all right, now what? Now, what do you do? You know, and it's like everything kind of flattens and there is nothing there because there was nothing to begin with. Um, because it's no recognition that the path was it. You know, again, it's kind of, you know, it's not, it's not the added value of the appearance. I mean, it's not that the, the degree didn't have any value. You know, it's not that. It's had, it had a lot of value and over the years I, I used it many times. But, um, but it's not, it wasn't what I added to it, you know, I, I, and, and it happened to me like in many things, you know, like many things we associate with felicity or happiness or, or powerfulness or whatever it is that we're trying to momentarily trying to achieve, you know, in, and in my life, I have, have many of those kind of, but now, and over, over the time, you know, I started learning I think I, I, I learned things or two about that, but um, you know that's what I think it's referring to. It's like how do we associate? It's not about like uh, you know, I mean we try we try to achieve, we try to put meaning to things mm-hmm. where meaning doesn't exist in things. You know, like we associate the meaning and then we try to get at that thing giving us the meaning that we want, mm-hmm. uh, and eventually we, that disappears. Yeah, and actually, it's a very important point that uh, he does bring up the uh, pursuing uh, achievements, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I, I think this is something that everybody is aware of, right? We pursue something, whatever it is, right? That we may spend years trying to get it, and then we, we build up all kinds of expectations that it should or will deliver, and then we get there and we realize it doesn't. Right? So now that's a fork on the road. And this is one. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> practicing Zen is, right. is one of the things that we can associate with a lot of other meanings. You know? And then it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to realize. And right. We practice Zen whatever. with the same mind that, that pursues. Right? And what he's saying, to attain the principle of return to the source, pursuing reflections, the essence is lost. So when we realize, and this is the point, very important point, when we again and again fall flat on our face, realizing it did not deliver, it does not deliver, we are in a way put on, there's a fork on the road. And often what happens is that 
we think, well, it's not the right degree, it's not the right call, it's not the right house, not the right wife or husband. <laughs> so I'm going to pursue another because it's not that there's something wrong with pursuing, there's, so, there's something wrong with this, yes. with the degree or the person or the situation or my boss or my employee or whatever, right? <laughs> so then we look and we replace and replace and replace until we realize, hopefully, in this lifetime, that it's not external. We demand from the outside to give us what it, no, I should say, we demand from the outside to give us what we already have, what we already are. And when we turn outwardly again and again, it's only gonna confirm that and we are lost. What he's saying here is that yes, pursuing reflection, yes, is lost because we're not turning inwardly, right? You attain the principle, return to the source. Sit down, turn the attention inwardly and ask, do you really, are you really lacking what you, what you are pursuing? Because we're not pursuing a thing. We are pursuing what we think the thing will deliver. It's not the degree yeah. or whatever it is, right? That's just a piece of paper. But we, we pursue what we think we lack. Now, as long as we think we lack, we will keep pursuing. Something else. And it's a cyclical, vicious cycle, actually, right? Painful cycle that never, is never concluded. And that's what he's saying that we need to realize sooner rather than later, right? So, yeah, you want to, any, go ahead. Somebody on Zoom? Yes. That's Matthew. Can you say the last part again? That's how what? That's how you end up with a universe and a hangnail. Universal what? In a hangnail. A hangnail. Yes. <laughs> yes, it does. That's how, yes, that's how it happens. So how do we get out of it? Do you want to say something? No, I was just mentioning that this makes me think of um, my name, Luminous Source, and how I often I don't go to it <laughs> during work. Yes, our names are there to be used, right? Dharma name is there, as we mentioned uh, a bunch of times. Dharma names are there yeah. to help us get out of that cycle. But I'm always looking at other people. That's the habit. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in a way, the Dharma name or Dharma teachings in general are there to break that cyclical habit and then turn inwardly instead of outwardly, right? right? Um, so if you have anything else to say, just hold that thought because I want to I wanna keep reading from the uh, Musong's co commentary. Um, there is a very important point that he brings up, connecting wisdom and compassion in relation to this line. So he says, this line in Seng San's poem highlights the inner tension between the teaching of shunyata, emptiness, and the teaching of compassion, karuna in the Buddhist tradition. Shunyata wisdom, as one word, points to the root of things, their lack of own being, their lack of separate existence, right? Nothing, everything is there, but not, does not exist separately from everything else. Or in other words, everything is everything. 
So the lack of own being, yet all the teachings of Buddha and other teachers also display compassion for all things in the world, right? So, and this is a question, right? Well, compassion to what? If things do not exist, a part of everything else, then what, what is compassion about, right? And then he says, this is a paradox that is resolved through this simul simultaneous practice of wisdom and compassion, right? Wisdom and compassion as one, akin to the necessarily simultaneous functioning of the two wings of a bird, or two wheels of a cult, actually, sometimes it's referred to. This is a basic template of the Bodhisattva model of Mahayana Buddhism. A Bodhisattva is active in the world, motivated by compassion for all beings, while being grounded firmly in the wisdom of shunyata, or emptiness. Acts of compassion have no meaning in the sense of validating anything in the Bodhisattva. Acts of compassion are just acts of compassion and do not need a reason for their justification. Important point, right? And then in a way, uh, act of practicing compassion or expressing compassion this way, it takes us out of the contractual way of thinking. I give you this, you give me that. I've done enough things for you. You've done nothing for me in return. That's very contracted mind. There's no wisdom in that way of thinking, right? Because that way of thinking still acts from uh, uh, the illusion of separation between self and other. I'm here to help you. That's not what's going on. It's how we perceive it. They become truly acts of compassion when the Bodhisattva is simultaneously aware of these acts of compassion in samsara, in suffering, are just as empty as anything else, including the Bodhisattva herself. So remember that triple emptiness, right? In, in giving, right? In dana, triple emptiness, there is no giver, there is no gift, there is no receiver. Now you can truly give because you are not there to give, then all there is is just giving. And it's incredibly powerful when it's done this way because it's not done for any other reason as just natural expression of a human being. Uh, let, let me just finish this and you're gonna talk first, okay? I'll finish that uh, paragraph. The compassion of the Bodhisattva is for the world of appearances. Now again, appearances, right? So it's not about existing or, does not, or not. That's not the question here is for the world of appearances in which deluded beings are caught in their own trap and experiencing varieties of dukkha, of suffering. Right? The Bodhisattva is motivated to find innumerable upaya or skillful means to address these varieties of dukkha, but never loses sight of the ultimate truth of emptiness of own being. The Bodhisattva is never confused about the source of the world of appearances. Through numerous upaya, the Bodhisattva can manifest equally numerous varieties of compassion, each appropriate to the dukkha-causing situation at hand, 
without ever turning compassion into yet another conceptual category, right? It's just very well put, right? Because we, when we act this way, there is no, I am sick and tired of this. I've done enough. I don't have anything more in me because I've done enough, right? That's the mind of duality. That's not the mind of wisdom. The mind of wisdom is always connected with the source. It arises from the source, and then there is nothing there. So who is saying, I've had enough? Who is saying, I don't want to deal with this? I want to bury my head under the pillow. Who's saying that? I don't want to hear, I, want to take, I cannot take any more of the suffering of the world on my own. That is producing self and other. Well, that way of thinking is at, 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 the, at the root of the production of self and other. And it maintains the, the illusion of self and other. Right? So we, we contractual. Everything is, everything is seen in such a way that is quantified and contractual. That is producing me, which is producing you. So, Connie. I was just trying to understand this whole concept of giving um, in terms of not having that a may be enough. That may be a enough. giver, right? And so I was trying to relate it to a real-life example, and I'm not sure if this is it, because maybe I think I might be... Like, right now, I have some housemates and I'm trying to live very communally. And, and so instead of it being very contractual, we're sort of, we're really evolving into like a family where resources are shared, but you know, we, all, we have to speak up. We still have to have our boundaries and stuff, you know, because you know, we just do. But you know, it's, it's not, in some ways it looks a little bit messy but like each person is having a different skill that they're bringing along and so things are becoming very fluid. Now from a typical like other relationships I've had where it's been like this is your rent, it's like this, things, things are very, they're, they're a little bit more fluid based on the different work put in. Is that kind of like, uh, would that be an example of instead of living as like an individual on a contract as just people living like a husband and wife or a community, something like that. Right, so not forgetting the, the unity, but at the same time not ignoring the multiplicity. You see, it's not this or that, it's all at once, right? It's operating within that mess, right? Whatever the mess that we have or we have to deal with, right? From the root of wisdom, right? And that's what... Right. Right. And it, and it is, you said fluid. It is constantly changing. You want to bring it back? Uh, it is, con thank you. It is constantly changing. That's good. Right? So, yes. So then, as long as, as long as there is that constant change, right, of fluidity, then there is no creation of self apart of other or of anything. Creation of something fixed is stagnation, right? That's the other side of fluidity, right? When things move, they move. So whatever I create is in a way being washed away by the flow of life. I 
get washed away by the flow of life. Right? And then we, we can work with the details. We cannot ignore the details. Right? It's not just, again, put a smile on and just forget about the details. That doesn't work. And we actually can create great mess doing that. So we have to address the details. We have to work with appearances, but not give appearances own being, as it is often referred to, right? Own being or separate existence. Then we fixate. We fixate on that, we, we fixate on this one here, who's creating it. So any creation is immediately creating self, other, and everything else as fixed and separated from one another. So, Pixie. Well, here is the thing. You don't survive. That's the point. You let that fire burn you completely. Then, then the idea of you does not survive. That's exactly the point. You as a part, something separated from, does not survive. Well, it's not there to begin with. Right? But saying it doesn't work. Right? It's like, oh, don't worry about it. There's nothing there. That doesn't work. That's why he's saying, you're going to have to figure it out. Well, he's not saying that, but that's the implication, right? So this is the, the point of practice. It is a matter of practice, not a matter of intellectual understanding, right? Or intellectual requirement. We have to go through that, right? So it's, in a way, the, the fire of suffering purifies and burns away all the extra. And I am the extra. Me, a part of you, is the extra. And when, yeah, go ahead. So I can see that happening for you as Roshi or a Bodhisattva who's come to enlightenment, but how does it happen to all of us? Well, okay, so we practice it, right? So one, so it's a good point, you're raising a very important point, right? It's not a matter of achievement, right? It's like, well, now I'm going to become that, right? A bodhisattva is not something you want to become. It's something you need to practice, right? It's not that you will become a bodhisattva, right? From the moment we enter a practice center, from that moment on, we are asked by the practice to act as a bodhisattva. Now, and, and nobody is measuring it well, you are bodhisattva number five, right? Because there are many degrees and then we put you on this degree, right? And then you're going to climb up that ladder. That does not exist, right? Do what you can to act as a bodhisattva. Fall down, get up. Fall down, get up. Make a mess, clean it up. Right? And I, I think that when we see it this way, I think it's empowering. Because now we're not waiting for the idea that we have in our mind or, or for the reality to match the idea we have in our mind. A bodhisattva is somebody like that, 
we have an image of a person or ideal in, in the mind, right? That's what we have to let go of. There's only one Bodhisattva, and that's you. In the whole world, there is only one Bodhisattva. When you wake up in the morning, it's, you have to recognize that. I'm the only Bodhisattva there is. Because if we don't see it that way, well, you know, I'm not ready. Somebody else will take care of it. I'll make a mess. Somebody else will clean it up. How's that? Right? But it comes down to you. Isn't that empowering? Or intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it is. Because it is saying, you know what it's saying? It's saying you are capable of a lot more than you think. And that's actually what the practice is saying to us. You think you don't have what it takes. Then, don't, then stop thinking. <laughs> then don't go to your thought to verify that. You go to your thought, you're going to hear, I'm not, I'm not ready, I'm not there yet. Right? That's what the mind will say. But you go deeper than that. You go deeper than thought and you realize, I was born to do that. I was born to live as a human being. Well, we're not saying fly. <laughs> oh, I was just reminded. Uh, I know you want to say something. Oh, no, it's okay. uh, no, I was just reminded of the translation for the Kanangyo, mm -hmm. which is Avalokiteshvara, who hears the cries of the world, takes refuge in Buddha, will be Buddha, helps all to be Buddhas, is not separate from Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. <coughs> Excuse me. Wow, what was that? Being <laughs> eternal, intimate, pure, and joyful. In the morning, be one with Avalokiteshvara. In the evening, be one with Avalokiteshvara. Yeah, thank you. So, so, and it's actually uh, a good point of reminding everybody that we do have translation. <laughs> so <laughs> we chant, you know, something in Japanese, but there are the translations in the sutra book. So it's good to uh, review and look at what it is that we are chanting or Sanskrit, right? So, Atadipa, for example, right? It's that turn inwardly. You are the light. Right? It, that's what it's saying. You are the light. Have no other as your light. You are the bodhisattva. Have no other as your vicarious bodhisattva. It's you. It's like Neo. <laughs> anyway, uh, you wanted to... <laughs> I mean, but that actually kind of, uh, you know, get, uh, is at least related to something I want to say, because what you're saying is... is I think very important. Um, it makes me think of the difference between loneliness and solitude in the sense of, you say, like, when you, it's really kind of a frightening realization that it's all you. And what that means, though, is, is important. And what you take out of that is important. So you might be on a day where you do not feel connected to anybody. And so when you say it's all on you, you know, it's going, and nobody's going to clean that mess up. You don't feel supported. You feel like so an island. And you right. feel like it's a giant like 20-foot wave coming at just specifically you. I think that that's when you start to really give into this feeling of which is not true, which is that all of this is very personal. <laughs> the universe is coming at me. Whereas it's not personal, but you're not alone either and it's really you know i struggle at times to feel that connection admittedly you know but then sometimes you do you feel supported we're all sitting 
in our own heads, and there's no uh, like USB cable connecting our brains or anything like that around the circle here yet. Anyways, we're not we're not at that point of the uh, the the post 2020 timeline yet. Uh, but uh, but it but we do feel a connection at times, and we perceive it. And but we're all just here. You know, we're parked. We're not going anywhere, and it's all us. But yeah, it's it's. Um, it's hard, and we get glimpses of it, maybe, and, and that, that is it. Um, whether we do or not, you know, how we do is a question, but I don't know. Glimpses, go ahead. The recognition of, of you are the Bodhisattva mm -hmm. um, comes with, with a recognition that everybody else also, <laughs> at the same time, everybody that we consider separate, they are including here. Mm -hmm. So when I say I am the Bodhisattva, it's like we all are Bodhisattvas. We are vision, mm -hmm. you know. And, and in that sense, you know, it's connecting to, to everything else. I mean, it's, it's not a I am, I am the only one, you know, oh my God, my God. You know, and it's more like we are all here to do this, you know, and I'm connected to everything else. So it's the collective, collective understanding, collective knowledge, I mean, trusting in that, trusting that we are all here to work together, not trusting that I am responsible alone as an individual, but, uh, but as, a, as a kind of a, a only one thing. And, and I think, you know, that's, it's not very clear when we say we wake in the morning and say, oh, I am the Bodhisattva. Like, well, I mean, it means like we are all, I mean, all the stuff that I consider separate, they're not. This is all, you know, and this is it's all expressed here. And this is the one, the, the portion that I'm, the expression that I'm commanding. So I do my part, but with everybody else. Uh, and that's how I see it. Well, I alone, uh, as the Buddha said, uh, uh, when he had his realization experience, right? I alone is all one alone. It's not alone as we understand it. Mm -hmm. It's all one as alone, which the word itself actually means all one. It's not loneliness and, and being alone are two different things, right? So, so alone as all one, everybody is always included. That's not something to agree or disagree with, but it is something to realize because if we don't realize it, it's, it becomes I agree or I disagree. I don't buy it. I'm going to go somewhere else, right? But uh, this is the, why the, the, uh, the practice is asking us to uh, realize on our own. I also like that of, of being a practice. You know, like I think uh, the, the responsibility is to show up to the practice. It's not to do it right every time. It's to show up to the practice. You know? and, and of course, I mean, with practice, you, you get better at whatever you do. Um, right. You know, that's, that's part of it. You know, like whatever you practice, good or bad, you get better at. You know, yeah. And um, so, so that I mean, to me, it was always very empowering that concept of okay, I'm just you know, the commitment is to show up to the practice, mm -hmm. not to do it perfectly right every time, because you, you won't be able to. I mean, like there's many things that you need to learn, and that's why you practice to learn those things, and fail and learn and fail and learn. So being dazzled by appearances, you miss the truth. And this is, uh, I saw you raise I'll be right with you. Being dazzled by appearances, right? And this is, um, it's some, again, it's something we have to recognize that we are dazzled by appearances. All appearances. It doesn't matter whether it's something we like or, not, or dislike. 
we can be dazzled by not liking somebody equally as we are by liking somebody, right? So we can be reactive to, equally to what we like or don't like. People that we like, people that we dislike. It's the same thing. And this is what we need to recognize so we can go beyond, so we can go deeper and re recognize the souls. Raise on. unskillful ways and um, I think what Connie was describing was an environment in which our skillful ways of interacting with each other mm -hmm. become emphasized and become uh, we become more aware of it and we become more sensitive to not only what we can do that is skillful but how we can develop our skillful ways um, and in response to Pixie, I think that, that sense of upaya, that we each bring to a situation some skills that we can use to enter into that situation. And <coughs> sometimes it's a skill that might have a, uh, a consequence that's readily visible, but frequently it um, might just be the skill of saying hi to somebody in the morning or all sorts of different levels of that skill. Right. Um, and I think we often, the Upaya element, and particularly the, the developmental aspect of that element, I think we don't always um, remember and take into account that, um, I think this Dogen, for instance, who keeps saying, study, 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 uh, part of that, I think, is developing the Upaya element within ourselves. Um, and that Bodhisattvas, um, somebody who is constantly, I think, concerned with their upaya and developing it to the largest extent. It's not just some kind of, a, you know, you push the button and it's compassion. It's that um, it flows out of us when we have developed it so that we can do that. Um, and the other thing is um, the situation, again, what Kanye was saying. I think it's always being aware of what's in the situation and what the situation calls for. What, what takes us as the um, grasping self out of the situation is to see the dishes need to be done. Somebody has to do the dishes. I've got five minutes. I can do the dishes. Um, now I'm no longer the grasping self in that situation. Um, so I really like the situation that you were describing most. Now, how we can get into that and see where our opaya mm -hmm. fits in and how it can become increasingly seamless as we practice that. Right. Thank you. So this is where uh, what you just said, uh, uh, you are echoing what he's saying here, that um, through numerous upaya, the bodhisattva can manifest equally numerous varieties of compassion, right? And then each appropriate to the dukkha-causing situation at hand, or potentially dukkha-causing, right? Maybe not yet, but it can cause dukkha. Mm -hmm. But then we can perceive it and react appropriately, right? And then, so, so two things happen. We address the situation, but we also uh, go deeper in our training, right? So we are, in a way, all bodhisattva in training, and the training never ends, right? As long as we are alive, we train. Right, because new situations appear, and he's saying that, you know, that dial it in to the du to the specific dukkha causing situation, 
that's, I think it's fascinating because it keeps you encouraged, right? And, and, and awake to life. Life is changing and you need to change on the spot, right? So, and it's, and it's good because it resp we respond to life with life, but it also life injects life in us at the same time. It's not one way, right? When we act this way, we are energized because it is, I think it's nurturing something very true in us. It's awakening something very true in us, acting this way, acting without the burden of a self. And it's a burden. It's only a burden. There's nothing good that comes out of it. It's just a burden that we think we have to carry on wherever we go and defend it tooth and nail and explain it and no, no, I meant this, I didn't mean that. Why? Right? We put it down. Hopefully, you know, when we sit and we put it down for a while and then we realize, I don't really need this. I don't need me. Anyway, uh, I was going to move on to the next one, unless there's one final, yes. So wait, wait, we're going to get your microphone. There is more cold here, yeah. It's interesting how um, the same words, what you just said, mm -hmm. can be encouraging to one person right. and feel discouraging right. to another person. And um, um, so, um, for those of us who um, have a habit of extreme self-criticism, um, or um, which leads to perfectionism, uh, another thing you said I think is very helpful. Well, raise on. You said this is a developmental process, and also what you said much earlier is, we do what we can. You do what you can right now, and there's going to be a range of what you can do right now. So, um, yeah, that's just to add some yeah. encouragement to those of us who sometimes might feel overwhelmed and discouraged. Right. Thank you. Uh, so. We have to learn to meet moments of discouragement, right, in ourselves. We have to learn to work with those moments. And the thing is, you know, uh, the self is discouraged, right? It's that, you know, so if we don't take that discouragement so seriously or don't give it so much weight, we can loosen up the grip of the self or on the self. Right? So obviously, you know, we feel discouraged because we don't feel up to the task. I can't do this. Well, I can, maybe once a week I can do it for five minutes. That's it, right? That's all I've got, right? I have limited resource or resources, right? But when you return to the source, it's unlimited. And it says return to the source. Don't ask the self, do you have time for him or her? Right? Because it's going to be maybe, maybe not, right? But when you return to the source, all of it kind of fades away. It comes back and then it fades away again. That's, that's the process you're talking about, right? And it is important to, to recognize that we are training. We're not acing anything. Nobody's asking anybody to ace anything. And then we have to throw away the idea of perfection. Really throw it away. We don't need it. 
Because it raises a question that does not exist. You are not in question. Perfection or, or, or wholeness or wholesomeness, well, wholesomeness in action is, but not in essence. You're not in question. But if you keep questioning it, you are in question, right? You keep questioning yourself, well, obviously you are in question. It's the questioning that creates that illusion. So, I'm going to move on. If you have something to say about that, you can uh, just keep that thought in mind and then express it. The next one, inner illumination in a moment surpasses idle emptiness. The appearance of this idle emptiness results entirely from deluded views. No need to search for truth, just put to rest all views. Uh, I want to bring up two other translations of that same paragraph. Awakening is to go beyond both emptiness as well as form. Going beyond. All changes in this empty world seem real because of ignorance. Do not go searching for the truth. Just let those fond opinions go. And the third one, go beyond both appearances and emptiness and find the unmoving center. Pursue the confusion of your opinions and the eternal mind is lost. Rather than focus on knowing the truth, simply cease to be seduced by your opinions. I think this is just the last line. It's just phenomenal, right? Rather than focus on knowing the, or trying to know the truth, simply cease to be seduced by your opinions. And we are seduced. I think we are slaves to our opinions. So, so this is uh, Musong on, on cultivating the center. He says, in Zen, there is the tradition of cultivating the unmoving center. It has its anatomical counterpart in the body, the lower abdomen, hara in Japanese, tanjian in Chinese, where chi or energy is stored and cultivated. When this center is strong, it does not get moved by either the internal chatter or external phenomena, appearances. All of the ascetic and martial arts in China, Japan, and Korea, uh, such in all of those, uh, look at this, uh, such as calligraphy, archery, uh, tai Chi and so on place extraordinary, extraordinary emphasis on this center in the body, the physical uh, place of it. In meditative traditions such as Zazen, this center becomes both the causal agent and the repository of a radical transformation. So it is stored there and it acts from there as well. It can even be argued that if this physical repository is not seen as an integral part of a radical transformation, any discussion of the latter is simply trans translational and self-deceptive. So there's more 
but I want, I want to stay with that for a few minutes. So cultivating the center. Now, if, if you, a couple of you do Aikido, practice Aikido, so you have um, a recognition, a relationship with what this is talking about, right? Uh, you, we can experience it also in yoga practices, right? And other, in Tai Chi, obviously. But there is that turning inwardly. And also in Zazen, we are turning inwardly. And we, are, we often talk about breathing from the center, not from here, right? So we take the, the attention from the upper body and we, bring, we lower it to the center of the body and we maintain it there, right? So the breathing in and out needs to be experienced as the uh, expansion and contraction of the abdominal area of your body, right? And then the attention naturally goes there and stays there. And then, of course, when we get up off the cushion and we move, we want to move from that center, right? So moving from the center is more unified than moving from the head. And moving from the head means I'm vested in my opinions, because that's where I find my opinions, right? And also it's upper body versus center. Upper body is, we can see it as upper body as one part and then lower another part and then the center unifies. The center also unifies uh, form and formlessness. So to, to teach ourselves, and this is what he's talking about, is the, the purpose of cultivation or, or the necessity of, for cultivation of that, of the attention again and again being turned towards that part of the body. So to move from the center. Any thoughts about that? Any questions about that? There's something I'm reminded of. Speak loudly in that direction. Okay, so there's something I'm reminded of. I'm just, you know, it's just a brief thing, actually. There are lots of symbols throughout the world, throughout, actually, all religions that point to that. And one of them actually is the original star of David um, is a triangle. Yeah. Formlessness going into form and, and then the form leaving. And it meets in the center, so two triangles. And that's a symbol of the meeting in the center. So I was just reminded. Yeah, the upward and the downward un unify, yeah. unite. Mm -hmm. Right? And this is, and we, we become. When we, are, when we move from the center, we become the embodiment of form and formlessness so we can let go of form and formlessness. We don't have to carry around the idea of form versus the idea of formlessness. That's another burden, another kind of burden. So to let go of that is to become that, to embody. Whatever we embody, we actually are freed off as something external. It's like we don't have to re remember, right? It, it's, it's like when you ask somebody to, you know, uh, about the Quran, they've done some time ago, sometimes they say, well, I forgot what I said. It doesn't matter what you said. What you said back then is what you said back then. Whereas the life of the Quran today is what matters. Otherwise, we go into the mind and we dig into the old box of thoughts and, oh, yeah, here's what I said. It's dead. It's dead. It's irrelevant. So, any other thoughts, comments, questions? Thank you. I'm just um, wondering how we all got here in these thoughts. You know, to, 
to think, you know, I don't study evolution, but to think we all came from this, you know, animalistic, you know, bird is not thinking how perfect its nest is. I mean, maybe, I don't know, but, you know, it makes a nest or, you know, goes out, you know, doesn't find the job, it, it knows its job. And, you know, even with any animal, so to have all these extra layers of, you know, dramatic stories you hear other people talk about, you get caught up in it and you go, yeah, they're, they're right. And, and trying to figure out what the reality of that story is and find the compassion part in it and be, you know, see the suffering that someone has in some story, but to kind of always trying to remind ourselves to go back to kind of, you know, find that um, original being or original source and um, trying, you know, I guess being a refugee in that is going back. So, um, so yeah, my mind just wandered around that during this discussion. Yeah, so where does it take you? What does it, so that discussion, so where does it take you? What, where does it lead you? What direction does it turn you? Okay, when we talk about the center, right? Do you recognize when you turn towards that and you bring your attention to the center, does it feel somewhat like homecoming? It, it, sometimes I go the bird. <laughs> but, you, yeah, you have to, you know, sometimes I go back and sometimes I go, what did I really feel? What was I really thinking when I was in that conversation? And, you know, where was I recognizing the compassion I was suffering and seeing us really all as one? Um, you know, because it, you know, the more I practice, and, you know, sometimes my practice is not so consistent, but the more I'm looking around, the more you see, of course we're all one you know this is this is one earth mm -hmm, mm -hmm. always the circle the imagery of the circle is always very interesting to me although i think an octagon is more mm -hmm. <laughs> is is also very repetitive shape in, in the universe but um it's just it's just like whoa <laughs> yeah so i don't know how how much i'm going back in here I'm kind of surfacing, you know, I'm, I'm orbiting, I'm orbiting myself rather than always looking inward. But I'm working. <laughs> I'm practicing. <laughs> right, which is, which is what we're talking about. You want to take the microphone? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think maybe something maybe not said enough, um, probably because it's, it's really hard to really grasp it, it in a, in a strict sense of when we're talking about you know what do we feel when we join the one <laughs> or the unity that we feel is it feeling like home um that also includes a lot of things that we don't like people <laughs> you know that we we're supposed to see ourselves or the potential of ourselves in some of the most awful people in the world are examples if we try to see these like moments of like tremendous evil or, or suffering as anomalies in, in the system because we're trying to also comprehend um, the goodness amidst all of the, the kind of, uh, you know, discord that we can see and perceive and we're trying to correct it to get the full picture of, of everything. And that 
that's really struggling because uh, we'll often want to take up a Feyline uh, approach to reality of going, well, this doesn't fit in with my understanding of how the universe operates or how it ought to be operating or any of those things we get tripped up on. Um, it's really difficult to, to encompass all of it um, and still hold on to that sense of unity because holding on to that sense of unity also includes holding on to uh, really um, troubling things. Let, let me read this next uh, uh, part of the commentary and see if that uh, connects with what you said because you know we, it's, it's what we need to realize, right? But the question is how do we realize it, right? How else do we realize it if not by turning towards what we think is ought to deliver and it doesn't deliver and how do we feel about that? Do we feel discouraged that it doesn't deliver or do we turn, we go back to the drawing board? Maybe there's something wrong in that, mm -hmm. right? You know, maybe the idea that it will or should mm -hmm. is flawed or it's based on an assumption of lack or, right, or for that we need something else. <clears throat> so this is on the line, our changing reality seems real due to ignorance. He says, the phenomenal world and the psychological worlds are empty worlds because the units that make up these worlds have no own being, right? That's Svabhava. You, you, I think you've heard that term before. They're all dependently a reason. If we take the changes that occur in these worlds to be real, we end up making emotional and psychological investments and thus feeling bereft when the return on the investments is not what we expect. That's, I, I think that's very uh, familiar, right, to, to all of us. We know what that feels like. Our ignorance is not seeing the dependently arisen nature of things that are taking place all around us and in us. None of this is real in the sense of having its own being, right? And that's what we talk about in terms of something being real. It's not real a part of you, right? It's not, it doesn't have its own realness, we can say, right? That's its own being. Any debate about real is really, as we have been discussing, about taking positions for being or non-being, which in turn is an assertion or denial of one sort or another, which is what keeps us in this cyclical uh, ping-pong game. It is, it's not, I'm good, I'm bad, you know, approval and denial and all that stuff, right? That's how we, and we stay in that realm. So to break out of that is to see, to see in real time, to see the, the fallacy of living like that. It just doesn't deliver. Yes, somebody, thank you, Pixie, for being the, the gatekeeper. <laughs> Mitra, yes. Mitra, can you hear us? Mitra? Um, I wasn't going to speak, thank you. She wasn't? Oh, okay. Okay, I'll... Uh, 
Let me go on to the next paragraph. And so this is instead of searching for truth, just cease to cherish opinions, right? That's the, the uh, commentary on that line. Searching for the truth with a capital T, right? The truth ends up only reinforcing the sense of a separate self, right? The search itself, the search for, for something else is creating the one who is searching as well, or um, fortifying the one who is searching. The realization or direct apprehension of the nature of things is transformative within the mind-body, transformative to, to oneself. We have been conditioned to believe that there is a truth out there, and each religion claims to have a revelation that has some sort of copyright on that truth. For Zen and Buddhist traditions, by contrast, in the phenomena following endlessly like a mighty river, there are only moments of realizations when the curtain of ignorance has been lifted and we are able to see clearly and directly that everything is dependently a reason. And nothing is self-sustaining. Radical transformation is indeed nothing more than ceasing to cherish opinions. We can, we can, we could, for example, have all kinds of opinions about the ever-changing flow of the river, or we could simply watch the flow of the river to the point where the watcher, the watching and the flow of the river merge into undifferentiated experience which is what we work with, right? When we observe, we want to lose the boundaries between the observer and what we are observing. When we lose the boundaries, we lose the thoughts too. We lose the opinions because they are not necessary. Opinions means taking a position for or against anything and everything. I think this is why sometimes we find ourselves saying no just for the sake of saying no. I want to say no. I don't even know why, but I want to resist. Right? I think it's familiar to many of us. Uh, we may mistakenly believe a whole life is a sum total of these opinionated accumulations, not excluding our ideas, beliefs, and prejudice. Not searching for the truth and ceasing to cherish opinions are not catatonic states, but rather conscious, vigorous, well, they are conscious and vigorous with our opinionated accumulations. The Taoist would call it Wei Wu Wei, or the doing of not doing which is proactive states of letting go of all views and opinions in a state of serenity or equanimity. Dan and Jordan's translation of this, as I read before, it says, rather than focus on knowing the truth, simply cease to be seduced by your opinions. Speaks, caref speaks forcefully to our habitual patterns and behavior. Each one of us gets so seduced by our opinions about things, large and small, that this seduction itself becomes one of the core organizing principles of our lives. Western cultures especially put so much emphasis on cultivating and expressing opinions 
that it becomes the only acceptable way to be in the world. If you don't have an opinion, you don't exist, right? Or you, at least you're not gonna be included in our circles. What would it be like if we could train ourselves to softly note, this is the deluded mind at work, right? To keep saying it to ourselves. Each time an opinion is formed in the mind. This is the deluded mind at work. Oh yeah, I've seen that before. I know how it speaks, how it thinks. So, and this is a very important point, right? It's not, not having opinion is not being blank, is not not caring. It's actually purely caring because when we don't grab or hold on to our opinions, we can care unconditionally. When we have opinions that we hold on to, sometimes we will care, sometimes we will not care. Compassion will be conditional. Right? So opinions, it shapes the way we move through life if we take them seriously. And again, opinions create the separate sense of self, which is why one, of the, one of the main reasons that we grasp on opinions because not, not grasping opinions does mean dying. It means dying to the imagined self. Hence the great death, which Zen speaks of. So, One second, we need a microphone. Is, I, like I said, I always like to, to make sure I really understand this. Is, is not having an opinion like um, getting away from the words and just uh, identifying with the universal feelings that we have, all of us experience. Is that it? Is that the great, is that the compassion that we're, that we're, that unites us? So let me clarify, so I think I need the microphone back because they will not be able to hear me. The line says, do not cherish opinions. It doesn't say that you don't express yourself Obviously, you know, you will express yourself when something comes up. You say, well, you know, here's what I see, here's what I feel, here's what I think, right? That is not an issue yet. It may be, but it's not. The question is, how tightly are you grasping, right? If somebody says, are you open to hearing something that may actually may mean that your opinion does not really, uh, is not the right way to deal with that, right? So are you, how quickly are you willing to let go, right? And, and often, and we, we see it often, right? People argue about something, never mind that what I just heard actually makes a lot more sense in order to move quickly through a situation or to tackle a task, right? Well, maybe, maybe you said something that is more fitting, right? But what about my opinion, right? Never mind that this is gonna work better, but what about my opinion, right? So it's a question of grasping, cherishing and grasping. Not, it's not a question of being blank, 
Okay. Get it, right? Not not holding on for holding on sake. Just to see what, you know, does changing your opinion make more sense? Are you open to another view? Are you vested in your opinions is another way to ask. Mm-hmm. Am I vested in me through my opinions? Because I'm vested. It's not the opinions. It's me. I'm vested in me, in myself. We are. We are. And we've said it many times. We are very self-centered and self-concerned. And this is not criticism. This is not judgment. It's something we need to realize and then recognize it doesn't work. That's all. Uh, no? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You said something, I thought you said that compassion is conditional. Can you say more about that? Yeah, well, based on my opinions, right? So if I think that you are if, if I think that you are up to my standards, right, or you've done this, this, and that, then I will dispense some compassion, right, based on my opinions and my standards, right? So we can't do no judge by any standards to release from that, right? Because if I'm holding on to what, what I think you are, what I think I am, then my dispensing of compassion will be dependent on that, Right? But if compassion is seen as, a, as an expression of wisdom, then it is beyond opinions at its source, at its core. Then it's unconditioned or unconditioned, unconditional. Okay. Thank you for the question, yes. Yeah, I was just going to say um, off of that, maybe um, might be worth um, distinguishing between compassion and idiot compassion in that sense. Of I think maybe we're when we think about yeah you know, the doling out of compassion we're thinking about it in that sense of idiot compassion of um, I'm being nice to you I'm giving you the thing and you've proven yourself trustworthy or worthy of X Y and Z compassion can take a lot of forms it's not just um, I don't know how to it's not transactional. Inher- like re- true compassion is not I'm adding it into my moral checkbooks and going like oh well you did this for me so I will now consider and think upon when the situation arises a proportionate amount of you know compassion to give to you it's 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 non-quantifiable in that respect and um, something I, I I've never really been good at articulating this part of it but something about I think what we've spoken about with this passage is with the idea of opinions of it being once you treat like treat it as a fixed thing reality is still moving and shifting and you're now the only fixed object and that's creating a lot of suffering and I always think about this line uh, uh, this famous line from Howard Zinn of uh, you can't be neutral on a moving train and um, it doesn't mean you don't have opinions about justice and and things of that in the world but the world is changing constantly and if you think that you could either be something that's stagnant and fixed or like you said blank slate i would just you know indifference you can't be either side of that but you have to be in the world uh no matter what well that's the only place you can express it right (laughs) that's it yeah please 
reach, forget the word reach, um, travel, forget the verb, become the way. Okay. <laughs> but um, I'm hearing some talk about intentionality. When you're trying to alleviate suffering, does your intentionality matter? If you're like some jerk, like whatever, a billionaire who's giving a lot of money to charities, you may not have the right intentions, but your outcome is alleviating suffering, right? Does it matter if they're not on the way, in traveling the way, but they're still being compassionate? Am I even being clear? I'm not sure. You're asking if it matters? In what way? You ask. Because everything's one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, I have a billion dollars, I'm a horrible person, I give half of it away. Am I not then traversing the way even though I don't have the right intention? Just yourself focus. Well, uh, yeah, can you uh, pass back? Thank you. You see, there is also the, the, the aspect of karma, which we have to bring into that, right? So karma operates, right? So you say, I'm a horrible person, right? So a horrible person may give, right? But that giving is actually, um, there is probably something there. There is being invested in something, right? Uh, giving for the sake of getting something back or giving for the sake of whatever, right? Recognition, right? That is creating some. That energy is creating something, right? What the money is helping, what will, how it will be used, there is that. But there's also the energy behind the, the activity, behind the giving. The energy is also creating something. So you can actually give, but then at the same time, give for, for something good, but at the same time do a lot of harm, right, on, a, on another level. So it's not, nothing exists in isolation, right? It's not just I write a check done right there is something else going on we are affecting everything all the time all the time our energy is affecting what's what's happening around us our state of mind our state of being everything it has it's not just that we are giving us whether we we realize it or not we're always giving we're always receiving too right it's not a matter of choice it's a matter of reality because things are connected so everything permeates, right? So negative energies, harmful energies permeate, right? So, so giving this sum of money doesn't change that law. It's the way it is, right? Is that there is a... There's a very important difference for me in differentiating between dharma and karma, so thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, so we are wrapping it up. So... Uh, few last words, oh, but few. This is just so Putin. Most of us would agree that he is doing very evil things and causing horrible harm. And at the same time, because of what he's doing, mm -hmm. the Western world is stepping up and getting more serious about um, renewable energy sources. Mm -hmm. And it's like both are true. Right. Well, right, so, so it's a catalyst, right? So, you know, I think often it happens that way that we have to go down before we go up. We have to realize how bad is bad before we change course, right? Before we wake up. So, yeah, I mean, beyond the right or wrongness of it, right? 
beyond the good or bad of it, beyond the, the fixed idea of good and bad, right? Energy moves. So it goes one way, then it goes in a slightly different direction, right? And things influence things. But we do want to get away from the fixation on good and bad, right and wrong, all that, right? Good and evil, whatever, all that. We have to get away from the uh, absoluteness of language or the way we, we, we perceive it. Because that's, I think, is dangerous. Yeah. And then we cherish something, right? Yeah. Uh, you want to uh, conclude? Someone with many resources, particularly money, mm -hmm. does something. There's also the karma of how that money was obtained. Yeah, that's true too. Right? And so whatever suffering has been relieved, it might not balance the suffering that was created by the original God. That's true. Exactly. So, right. Because nothing exists in isolation, right? It's not one act separated from everything that... Uh, that made it come about, right? Before that, right? And then what direction is moving from that forward? So again, nothing is, nothing stands alone. Everything affects everything. There is so that. The behavior that includes more, I mean, we've been saying this all morning, but the behavior that includes more, I mean, random acts of compassion are mm -hmm. kind of interesting and spectacular, but unless they're more inclusive, it doesn't really have much... Well, because if it's not all-inclusive, it doesn't arise from the source. Yeah. Is the point, right? It's, it doesn't come from the source. It, it comes from an ego or whatever. It comes from a separate sense of existence, which we try to protect. Mm -hmm. When it comes from the source, it is naturally all-inclusive. It's not that, well, we need to be all-inclusive today. Yeah. Not, there's no thought. Because... What else, right? Of course. So, all right. Thank you. So, to be continued, let's finish with the four vows.
house is high and opportunity is lost. Each of us must strive to awaken, awaken. Take heed, do not squander your life.